0: this is the coolest show brought to you by hip-hop caucuses think 100
1: it's the coolest show you know keep the culture connected. it's the coolest show you know in your ear yeah respect the expert level information entertainment education rev here we got you covered as you hit your destination climate rules everything around me cream for those who lost focus close your eyes and just train open your third eye now the world is your off coolest coolest show you know it's the hip-hop cool.
0: Well, I'm, as you know, excited for all the interviews, but this one in particular, I have my dear brother, Jerome Foster II. Jerome, man, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. How are you, Reverend, Reverend Yearwood?
0: I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Well, listen, we, we, we got some, a lot to cover, a lot going on. First, first question. So what are you listening to? What, what do you put in to get you started for your day?
1: Um, I'd say I always start with like a little bit of like lo-fi music to like music without words or like soundtracks from like movies that just yeah. came out. Um, that's typically what I listen to. Other than that, I think, um, new albums like Harry, um, Harry Styles new album and stuff like that. I just like listen to to really get me in the zone of work because I really like music that isn't just. Like the typical pop, it's like it's taking their own sound, making something new with it, and also making it also civic-minded because I like having some verses in there. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. you are talking about there. I know what you're referencing there. I like, that's so I kind of like that of my music as well.
0: Now, do you play instrument? Did you or did you play instrument growing up?
1: I did, yeah. oh I played the trumpet growing up, and I also played okay. the clarinet <laughs> and the triangle. But triangle, I don't I, played the, clarinet, <laughs> I played
0: the clarinet actually? Did you? We know what the. I, I did, but you know, I used to always lose the little reed, you know what I'm saying? I would always be like, I would even be chewing on my reed. You know, I just, I was just like, I'm not sure what I was, I wasn't. But I was, yeah, I was a clarinet, I was a clarinet and a bass guy. Oh,
1: yeah. I always wanted yeah. to get into bass. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't do it, but clarinet was the one thing I could do. I always knew clarinet, I was ready to go, but <laughs> I'll go into bass sometime in the next couple of years. I want to learn the guitar and more things like that. That's nice, what's up.
0: Well, listen, we hop right into this, and I, I got more questions on that. But for the folks who don't know you, who is Jerome Foster II?
1: Um, well, I'm 20 years old. I just turned 20 uh, about two weeks ago. Um, I'm a climate justice activist. Um, I also say I advocate for voting rights, for racial justice rights, for the intersection of what modern humanity has to stand for when it comes to anything with um um, gender equality, racial equality, immigrant reform. I'm all fighting for that because it's about having an intersectional movement. Um, I'm also white house environmental justice advisor, um, for president Biden, I advise on executive orders with regards to making sure that frontline communities have access to infrastructure, things like that. And I'm also the co-founder of wake up, which is a new initiative I'm founding, um, which works to create news for the movement and make sure that it's successful to everyday people to know what's going on and how they can get involved.
0: Wow. So if I was to ask you this question, who is your community? How would you describe that?
1: I think my community is, for one, definitely, I grew up in D.C. and Maryland. So that's that's my home community right there. Um, but I'd say the environmental justice community has definitely been where I was able to find my voice as well, because ever since I was around six or seven years old, I went to Earth Day and found out about what climate justice means and what we have to do to make sure that our planet is safe. And why is that risk? And I'm realizing that the people that I found in this fight, the people that I found like through organizing have become my community, the people that I look to build friendships with.
0: So let me ask you a question on that. And no, know you mentioned to us, I'm going to combine questions from my first question about music. You're mm-hmm. from the DMV, as we affectionately call it, District, Maryland, Virginia, for those who are listening all over the world. And um, DC, D- are you from DC proper or from Maryland or Virginia? You, DC. You, did you grow up in DC? Oh, okay. I
1: grew up right
0: what, what, in DC. What part yeah. of DC? Uh, I grew up in Southeast. Where? DC. where? Uh, Around the Navy Yard area. Yes. What? Well, let me find out, Jerome. You out here? <laughs> Jerome. Is. Well, you got so you Southeast. Uh, so, 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 so you. So, if I tell you uh, chicken wings and mumbo sauce, where, oh, where okay. would you go to get that? Uh... Well, where would you like, go? Yeah.
1: It was... I don't find it anywhere. <laughs> I suck on every street.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a yeah. fact. But folks who don't... If you're, if you're listening right now, you have no idea what, what mumbo sauce is. To be honest, those of us from the DMV, we don't actually know what mumbo sauce is either, but it's actually very good. And <laughs> we did You just kind of put it on everything. It's kind of like ketchup if, you, if you're wondering. But it's, okay. a, it's a thing in the D.C. area. It's a... Uh, that's that's very very funny. Now yeah. you mentioned in classics, you mentioned pop. You didn't mention go go though.
1: Are, are you were you ever in go go at all? My older sister is definitely in the go go. She tried to get me to like go go for some years now, <laughs> but I have to say I don't I don't I'm I'm not particularly fond of go go. But maybe in maybe next couple years I might like it. My sister's
0: still trying to get. Let me, me. ask you a question. Have you ever been to go go? I haven't. No. <laughs> Okay, I, so that's, that's what we got to I know you've been to a lot of climate. I know you to a lot of. I know you to a lot of climate rallies. You and I got to go to a go go. <laughs> we do. We definitely do. <laughs> we got to go to a go go to roll. Yeah, we got to go. Yeah, yeah. We got to go there. We're we gonna try to convert them to fight for the planet. But we got to go to a go. That's 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 on my list. That's my bucket list. I got to get Jerome Foster second to a go go. We got to make Annie a sister. Cause I'm sure she likes go go. Oh yeah, she loves yeah,
1: it. <laughs> She also loves mumbo sauce. <laughs> That's amazing.
0: <laughs> do, do you got a you got a do you have a close knit family, actually?
1: I do, yeah. Um I have, uh, one have a one older sister. I have um I also have uh two nephews. And my mom and dad are pretty close, so we're all okay. just one big family. Okay. They they are divorced, so they have like their own size, I... but we still keep in touch.
0: Yeah. Are they I'm sure they're proud of what you're doing. Do they understand the work you're doing around the climate movement?
1: Yes, Um, my parents. Well, my mom and dad both helped organize the Million Man March in Washington D.C. And since I was a kid, they always brought me out to Mm -hmm. protest. They would like um, whenever there was a civil rights protest um, around racial justice, we would always be out in the streets marching. To even when I was a kid, and we when in 2008, I was six years old. They also had me like doing stuff for the Obama campaign, um, putting flyers in yards. So I think they've always been civically minded, but it's never been directly Mm -hmm. about the environment. Um, The environment has definitely been something new to them and. Mm -hmm. Still, was pretty new to them because I'm definitely trying to make sure their lifestyle is, is within the bounds of being in touch with nature. Um, but I'd say it, it was it was my upbringing that brought me to brought me to where I am. Too.
0: What is your story of being in the movement for climate survival?
1: They had the People's Climate March in 2014. Um, I was in middle school at the time, and I was sharing documents around the march, how um, my peers can get involved, and that was when I first started. Um, Getting in touch with other environmentalists and knowing that there's a larger movement. Because before then, I always thought, oh, well, climate is just a scientific issue, and it's more of like how do we like take it from a technology perspective. I didn't really understand the social justice aspect of it because a lot of books really only focus on solar and wind turbines. And then as I began organizing and started working with People's Clim- People's Climate March, with Earth Day, Earth Day, um, Earth Day Network, and organizations like that, I understood the intersections with other movements I had already been organizing with like, um, William March and organizations like that. Um, but I think now my relationship with the movement has become a lot more nuanced when, as I continue organizing, I realized that politics is one of the main levers in which we create change. And I oh. first got involved with that was when my first year in high school. I took like a week off of school and I went down to the DC council and I saw they were having the clean energy DC omnibus act, which was, At the time, the most aggressive decarbonization bill in the nation, trying to green Washington, D.C. to 100 percent. And over two days and just trying to make sure people understood the importance of the youth youth voice Um, and actually becoming successful from that. Like after that, um, after the the D.C. Clean Energy Act came out, um, we saw that it was approved 100 percent. Like all of the council members had agreed with it when the estimate beforehand was that it would never be passed. And that was because of youth and because young people came out. So I, I understood that, and that kind of changed my perspective of what activism means. It's working from the inside and working in the outside and trying to figure out where we meet in the middle to create the most impactful hmm. change. Because if our demands are too um, not specific enough for politicians, they just use it as talking points. But if policy isn't actually grounded, then it just becomes non achievable. So I really wanted to work, that's how it worked in both angles now from my perspective in the White House. And also with in of us trying to get young people to vote.
0: Talk, talk talk to us about the climate strikes you led every Friday. You know, what what is that? For folks who don't know,
1: uh, where were they? Where were you? And, and why was it important? So I started, the climate strike started around August of 2018. And it was during that time when Zero Hour and Sunrise Movement were just getting started. They had just been around for about a year. And young people were really making their voices heard. And around that time, Greta Thunberg had said, Hey, I saw the um the making sure that every young person can have access to this by taking a stand against education, saying, Why are we studying for a future that won't exist or will be or not even be in the same form that it is today? And the climate strike movement grew from that idea of saying young people are the backbone of our society. Like forty percent of the entire world is made up of people that are under twenty five. Like that's a massive amount of people that we can get to in cities all across the world. Um, and it started with like 10 people in the beginning in August of 2018. And then by January 20, 2019, we had about 25,000 people. Then it continued to grow into tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, to millions, where we saw that it was a cultural shift. Climate strikes made it so that climate change wasn't just a nice issue about polar bears that were dying, but it was actually changing the conversation around what this intersectionality mean? What is environmental racism? What is the issue of why the global South wow. is being impacted first and worst by the climate crisis, but we aren't seeing nearly as much investment that's needed. And that kind of made it so everyone understood, oh, climate change is not just a lofty issue. It is a life or death issue. It's a critical ecosystem issue. And one of the biggest things I really want to think of the climate strike movement for doing is that now young people are taken seriously in, in, in spaces now. Before 2018, we saw like every time we went to talk to Congress members, every time we went to a space, they were like, "Oh, why are young people here? You guys should be in. You guys should just be back in class." But now in 2022, we're seen as a pivotal and important voice that needs to be heard, and that's especially due to the climate strikes that held millions of people around the world.
0: What are the challenges of the environmental movement for young people, and especially Black young people, and? Are the challenges unique for men? Are they unique for women? Are they unique for non-binary community? And why?
1: Especially when we talk about climate change, I would say that the communities that are women and non-binary people are quickly at the forefront of, of disadvantaged communities because as we saw in the Philippines and with natural disasters, people that are of the LGBTQIA community aren't given access to shelter and aren't given access to be able to take refuge from the climate crisis. And women, especially across Africa and Southeast Asia and in South Asia, we see that they are seen in society because of the, the social structures that are in place, that they have to walk farther, they have to go through more arduous experiences because of the fact that they're caring for family members and caring for their children. That is why when we talk about climate change, it's not it shouldn't be a room full of white, wealthy men. It should be a room full of people that are actually being impacted right now. Because every time we go into spaces and we see diverse communities, young people, scientists, people impacted um, by the climate crisis, like indigenous women, we we have different, entirely different conversations about theories of change. We see that it's not just trying to create investment and create these economic structures to make clean tech profitable. It's about how do we make sure livelihoods are safeguarded? Because we don't. The whole focus of the climate justice movement it's not just about slapping a solar panel on the, on, uh, on the climate crisis, but actually getting to the roots of these issues and getting to the roots of the climate crisis and saying, what do we want to uproot and what do we want to place in, in, that, in that void that we've created? So I think that's kind of why I stand on that.
0: Yeah, no, I, I get that. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me go a little deeper on that then. I know one of, one of our, we have, first of all, we have the most amazing producer here, Jerome, uh, from all sectors, from Tamara, Cross Destiny. and Destiny, and they do a phenomenal job, I and mean, the whole team at Hip Hop Caucus, but one of our producers also has in her own organization that she works with, Generation Green, um, Destiny, and one of the things that they bring out is about environmental liberation. And particularly how that's centered in blackness and centered in and and the survival and the wellness of black people. How does that strike you? Are you? What are your? When you hear that, what are your thoughts? Are there any challenges to that? Uh, what's your feedback to that process?
1: I think my feedback is really timely because last night I just had a call with the um, Justice Forty White House um, Working Group on um, um, social and economic indicators of environmental disadvantage. And the key disadvantage that we saw was the issue of race, the issue of systemic racism in America and all over the world. And when we talk about Black liberation, the fact that climate change has to be centered in Black and Indigenous knowledge, it comes from the fact that we lived in harmony with nature. We lived in harmony with natural cycles. And the only solutions we get from the climate crisis that are long lasting and and, and well-defined are those that come from our communities. And I see that as thinking from a policy standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from any standpoint, we have to make sure that we don't just start from a, a place of worrying about money, but worrying about people first. Because when we look at what's happening across America right now, we're seeing massive flooding in Miami, Louisiana, and places all across Southeast. We're seeing fires across California. We're seeing a sixth mass extinction level event that we're going through. And, The only way we get out of it is by saying, what did we do in the past to stop this? We don't need to look towards an amorphous future. We don't need to create something new. We need to look back and say, humanity has lived in harmony with nature for tens of thousands of years. And for us to get back to that, we have to look back into the lessons that we used then. And that's what it means when you have to liberate ourselves from this idea of capitalism being the only way that we can live.
0: Hmm. You know, you were, or I think you still are, the youngest member (laughs) You mentioned it of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Uh, one, folks who don't know, what does that role entail, and what whatever you learn, and where are you now in that in that process?
1: Yeah, so the White House Environmental um, Justice Advisory Council, we we call it WeJAC for short. Um, really, has three main roles in that. One, we help to draft the executive orders around environmental justice because. Right now, the Biden administration without the WEJAC is really only centered around just making sure that we have infrastructure investment and making sure that we um, have solar panels built. But it doesn't look at legacy issues and legacy pollution and the cumulative impacts of that exposure to greenhouse gas emissions. And through this advisory council, our role is to say is to clearly define what environmental justice means and clearly define the timeline that it has to happen within and clearly define what President Biden has to do and what his administration must do to make sure that we have a safe future. Um, what we've done so far as a White House counsel is that we um, fleshed out and spearheaded the idea of the Justice 40 Initiative, where 40% of all federal investments must go to, investment benefits must go to frontline communities and disadvantaged communities. And that priority, that Right now, in its current form, doesn't include race, doesn't include gender, doesn't include issues around um, being at the front lines or legacy pollutions. It really only looks at health and asthma and lung cancer, which are important indicators. But it's not intersectional in many other ways. So, right now, we just got um, we sent a letter to Congress about last week um, with our recommendations for them to w- on what they should do, and we said that we should pass the Climate Change Education Act. Um, around issues of making sure that we have H.R. 8, abolishing a filibuster, things like that to make sure that our government actually functions the way it should and other issues around our entire whole government. The, the easiest way to break it down is to say that the environmental justice, um, working approach is environmental justice, and we do get pushed back because we do get a, a bit rambunctious. I do find myself yelling in a lot of these meetings, um, but it's needed, so.
0: No, that's that's good. I mean, so I think, you know, and I know this I know right now I was on, on this show, we've talked for everybody from Gina McCarthy and Ali Zaidi to Dr. Bullard and, and Dr. Wright. And and now yourself, um, all these folks who are doing amazing work, let me say that off the top, and who I just admire so much for what you're doing. Um, and in that, I know that you're in this position where you have to speak truth to power. You mentioned you have to raise your voice. I know personally, I was someone who was, um, I think still am the only person who was a White House intern um, to become a White House champion of change. Um, but at the same time, I was arrested outside the White House um, during, Barack, during Barack Obama, um, fighting for the Keystone XL pipeline. So, you know, you're always in these positions where yeah. it's an inside outside. One day it's a good day. One day it's a, it's a bad day. But you got to, speak, speak up for your people, no matter what. With that in, in, in mind, it seems like, and I was recently around, um, uh, Peggy Shepard and Dr. Wright and Dr. Bullard and many of the, some and many others that they were, there seemed to be some frustration around the ability of the justice mm-hmm. 40 tool and making sure that does what it's supposed to do. Um, and also around the the tool that would utilize obviously race as an indicator do you share those concerns that maybe some of the tools that are coming out of the white house are not going far enough or are are you not really uh on the same page with them
1: no it's definitely been frustrations all around the board we've had some zoom calls where we're just like what is going on here like what are we actually doing like our recommendations took a year to hear back from. So every week we're going in there saying, what's the updates? What's happening? And in the meantime, President Biden was basically ha- allowing more oil and gas leases doing the exact opposite of what Justice 40 should be doing. So it felt like we're in a complete stagnation. I feel like to an extent we feel like that right now. Because whenever we go into these meetings and talk about Justice 40, talk about the nuances of it, there's always like some nuance, like saying, oh, this this law is saying that we can't do exactly what we need to do because Congress has to follow this rule. And it says, do you want us to make an impact or not? Like, what is our role here? You clearly define that we are, a, are supposed to be advising the White House. But every time we do that, there's always a hurdle or limitation that c- comes into play. So that's definitely frustrating when we want to make these large impacts and large recommendations being windowed down into basically being a status quo. And we're not here to stand with that.
0: No, I'm glad to hear that. If you're talking to your peers, some of your 20-year-old folks, about what is Justice 40, how would you describe that?
1: Mm, I would say Justice 40 is... Yeah, Justice 40...
0: And why is it important?
1: I'd say it's important as a starting line um, because right now it's saying 40% of investment benefits, which is hard to even define in itself because you say you initially think, oh, 40% of investments are going to frontline communities, but no, it's the benefits of those investments... And it's hard to even quantify what that equals. So I say it's good as, as agencies and federal, federal agencies like department of transportation, department of um, education, energy, have to think about how they basically work with, work with the environment. I think that we have to push a lot further because justice 40 is really not cutting out to what it's supposed to be. Um the, I see the, the first benefit that we saw when we first entered um, the advisory council was that we saw that agencies were looking to make a lot of change, looking to make um, a lot of difference through Justice 40 saying, mm-hmm. oh, we're going to make sure that all of our councils, all of our committees, all of our um, uh, groups are going to be making sure and listening to the recommendations that we, that we do and that we actually publish. And we didn't hear anything from that. When we wound up having meetings three months later, the work group said, oh, well, we really couldn't implement that because it wasn't within what our agency typically does. So it's good, but it has to go much, much further.
0: I I agree. Um, And even also, let's be very clear who the enemy, we we are very clear on who the enemy is. We're we're pushing um, policy because we know we got to either shape policy or policy shapes us. So we doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, we're pushing that. We understand that. But the real enemy here is the fossil fuel industry. Um, And in a recent article for The Nation, uh, you and others caught out on um, fossil fuels as a threat to national security. Uh, help the audience to understand the intersection between fossil fuels, human rights and wars.
1: Yeah, I think the best way to break down how majority of what the war is about. But if we look at why why our gas prices are going up, why electricity prices are going up, we can bring that back to how does oil flow throughout the world? Right now, Russia is a massive exporter of oil. They basically rely mostly on oil exports to build their economy. Right now, we're seeing that the United States and Europe is hesitant to even stop that flow of oil because they know that they're so so latched on to fossil fuels. And because of that, Russia is able to fund violence against Ukrainians. And we see that in many other wars. When it comes to wars in the Middle East with the United States, most wars in global history have been about natural resources and exploitation, of natural resources. This is just this modern form Whether it's been slaves, whether it's been diamonds and gold or whether it's been oil, it's, be- it's been fueled by that, that need to exploit. And I think that really when we talk about why it's a national security threat is because now when we look at Germany, take Germany, for example, Germany has Nord Stream 1 as a pipeline of oil going from, um, has a pipeline of oil going from Russia to Europe. It also has two other pipelines from Russia funneling oil all across Europe. And because of that, Germany is not is reluctant to even give any support to the rest of the European Union to to stop this war. And that is really holding a, another country hostage. That's a national security threat because you can't even defend yourself because you're a lion or another country. Not clean energy is a obvious solution to that. Everyone has equal access to energy. And that's really what we're fighting to protect is saying we can't have countries not stand with their morals because of their dependence on fossil fuels. That's a national security threat. And that is what has to be changed. So I think that's what the letter and the op-ed in The Nation was highlighting um, with my um, fellow activist, Alexandra Villasenor, who is right now in World Economic Forum seeing the same conversations where our economic system is severely severely like held on to this idea that fossil fuel is going to be the only way that we make it not just for the use of being traded and exploited and used and sold against nations or against people.
0: So Jerome, what is one million of us and why did you build it?
1: Well, I built one million of us, um, during my internship with Congressman John Lewis in 2019. Um, and it was from my experience of talking to a few of my, the fellow interns that were in Congress, just talking about different movements that they're fighting for and how they got to the internship they were in. It was some people fighting for women's rights, people fighting for gender equality, people fighting for racial justice. And we all kind of came to discussions over like hours and hours of just talking to each other, understanding that voting is a kind of central, central like force that we're fighting to, to change. And it's, when it comes to every movement, the only way we make change is through voting. Um, and that was the emphasis to why I started One Million of Us is to kind of change the mindset around just going out to March and then going home, but then going out to March and then taking that same energy right to the polls and then continuing to vote year after year after that. Um, and that's that's why Start started One Million of Us. And throughout the year that we um, were founded, we organized Prom at the Polls, which was one of the biggest initiatives of the year to turn out youth vote. We had. Um, Some people from Marvel, people from all over Netflix and other news studios to bring people out to to be a part of this kind of like party at the polls. Um, And from that energy, we got a lot of young people to turn out to vote. So that's the idea of One Million of Us. And it's kind of morphed into the idea of Wake Up. It's a rebrand into a new organization that I'm founding over the next few months.
0: Okay, so uh, when does Wake Up, is Wake Up ready to go now? is Is it out there? I mean, what's going on with that?
1: The launch date is around July um and that is okay. when we're set to launch but it's a news to impact organization um really focusing on how do we like raise awareness of certain issues like that are unheard in the movement it's not just about environmental justice it's about all movements in it with with respect to um, with respect to modern social movements that we're going through today um and also one Million of us is is another part of that where we turn out um, people to vote through the website.
0: I love it. Well, count me in. When we when we go to our, our go-go and we get some either whatever we get and you know, maybe some with, with mambo sauce, maybe not chicken, <laughs> but whatever we get with mambo sauce, we got we to gotta do a, a wake up ad, right? We just got to do something really cool with that. So c- count, me in. count me in for that. It has to happen without a doubt. You know, Jerome, how does it feel actually being sometimes the youngest person in all these spaces? What I have you learned so. from that?
1: Yeah, um, being a young person, a lot of spaces for most of my like time within the, these movements has been kind of enlightening to see how adults understand youth and our intelligence because oftentimes you're seen as just a token or seen as just like a person who's going to be there just for a tick box. And then you realize, no, I'm not just going to be a token. I'm not just going to be a person that you put here to, to say, oh yeah, look at this young person we have. Really what I've realized is that when you shake things up as a young person, adults realize, oh, it's not just having a young person here. It's about understanding the minds they come from. Young people have a different outlook on life, especially Generation Z because we grew up in 2008 financial crisis. We grew up in now COVID-19. But at the time, we had so many other issues around Trump and political like dis- dis- like um, instability, understanding that what has to happen is thinking about longevity of solutions, thinking about how do we make sure our future is safe? Because if we just put a bandaid on the climate crisis, when I become 40 and 50 and become these, the adults in these spaces, then we have the same crisis over and over again. And that's what Generation Z and young people have is a different mindset around solutions. And that's the biggest thing I've learned. I think another thing that I've learned is that when we talk to older generations, we understand that there's an energy and history of, of, of understanding that environmental justice isn't new. It's, it's a movement that's been happening since the 70s and e- even further before that with Native American people and Indigenous people who've been fighting for this issue as well. We realize that young people also understand that we have to have a seven-generation mindset. Young people are thinking seven generations into the future, thinking we have to make sure that our environment is not just sustainable for our children, but our children's children. And older older people just think, oh, well, I might not be around for that. So why would they even think that long, in that long long-term mindset?
0: You know, uh, well, before I ask my next question, I um you know, I'm around a lot of everybody in the moon, but particularly young people, young black people in the moon, young black and brown, and it did this within the movement. Um let me ask you this question. there's a lot going on right now, right? It's a lot going on in regards to climate, obviously what you doing in regards to policy. Um, a lot going on in regards to racial justice, economic justice. It's a lot going on in regards to shootings that are horrific from grocery stores to churches to elementary schools. First and foremost, how are you doing?
1: Are are, are you doing okay right now? I mean, I mean, how are you feeling right now? Um, I feel like for me, I'm really doing, I say all right. Um, Internally, I've been doing a lot of meditating, doing a lot of things to make sure that I'm not feeling that grief that I always feel when horrific events like this happen I try to make sure that I stay grounded in the idea that we have to just keep pushing forward and that we're in this fight for our entire lifetime so it has to just be us keeping our head in the ground keeping going forward and working harder than we ever were but I think it's been lonely at times I'd say throughout the pandemic it's been a lot of organizing through my room organizing and just not seeing outside for like a month and then going outside never be like what's going on what why has nothing changed? Why are people not organizing the way they used to? Why are people not really focusing on social movements anymore? Why what's, what's really going on? And we're realizing people are burnt out. People are tired of not seeing any change. And it it is come to a point where we're realizing that it's not just going to come from young people who are always going to be this moral compass. It has to be from people, adults that are willing to stand with us as well. Um, and I'd say in the future, and this is next Two, three years is going to be a really big, pivotal year for the United States in particular, because if we don't use this energy that we have right now, use this opportunity to actually create something long lasting that changes the system of government as a whole, then we're going to see decades where the United States is going to continue to go on this downturn. It's it's We have this short window of making a lot of change and we have this short window to actually do something that's right. And if we don't use it, we're, uh, we're going to see a lot more worse even worse horrific things happen
0: what what is what is life a lot of people who listen to this may not know what is life like for a young person in the mainstream climate activism
1: mm, i say life is good, a lot less bad. exciting <laughs> but i think <laughs> it's, it's exhilarating at times <laughs> um <laughs> like for what, what does that mean? What, I
0: mean what do you say to me? <laughs> yeah
1: um yeah, I say during some months like <laughs> November and April or September like when there's big um events around climate that's pretty exciting, pretty like energizing to think that oh this might be the time in which we actually do this. But I say most of the time it's just Zoom calls like this, it's most of the time just um meeting with people around logistics, organizing behind the scenes of what uh, a process should look like, things like that. Yeah. I say, say it's pretty <laughs> Pretty good work, <laughs> but I'll say it's a lot of a lot less exciting than people would think.
0: <laughs> I can listen. I know I'm there with. <laughs> I'm also there with you too. Sometimes I'm the only. I'm the only brother in the room. Sometimes where I'm at, I, 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 but I'm a little older. How do you feel? Sometimes you're the only brother in, in the rooms you're in, and that's and you have a unique role in that. I mean, how how do you feel about that? Sometimes I mean, and and what kind of things that you see through that lens as sometimes being the only brother in the room.
1: Yeah, I think um there's definitely been some bad situations where people ask me to like do a rap for them or to if I sag my pants mm. or if I talk this way or talk that way. I'm like, I'm not. I don't do that. I'm not a stereotype. I tell them to face that because if we don't stand up to them, they're gonna keep doing it. Um but I think a lot of times it's just people wondering why I'm there because the environmental movement Especially for Gen Z, is overwhelmingly like white young white women or young white men, and it aren't a lot of people of color. There aren't a lot of people that are that are black men that are in this movement. And I think a lot of times it's because of the fact that we aren't seen as as anything other than rappers or basketball players or sports people. And it's oftentimes trying to break that mold actively for people to understand that we're that we're not just that. And that we are a multifaceted, we are multi, just we're full humans. We aren't just that idea of what a black man is supposed to be. Um, I even struggle with that in so many ways of how do I express myself as a black man? Like my hair, oftentimes I'm like, do I cut it? Do I, do I get dreads? Am I allowed to do this type of hairstyle? Will there be a negative stereotype around if I'm seen as a rapper or someone just came out of prison and people around me just say if you do that and be a person who's in the White House, a young person, and you tell people that you're setting the example properly, then you now become what people look up to. And I think I feel like I have a big weight on my shoulders knowing that Gen Z is trying, and especially black men who are young, trying to break out the idea of so many limited things we can do and how we can express ourselves. Because I know as I was younger, I always pressed my parents, I was like, I'm only allowed to be either like, lustful as a black man or to be angry as a black man in the mainstream movement because that's mostly people expect you to Uh be. And I want to be something that people understand is that like, I am capable of more things than that. And I think it's always been an uphill fight and it's still something I grapple with today.
0: No, I understand that. But then how do you deal with fighting off imposter syndrome? I mean, how does that impact you then? Because on the flip side of once of that, you then have to then conform, and so how do you? And that's not healthy either, right? So how do you deal mm. with that component? Like how do you balance that?
1: Mm. I I try to balance imp- imposter syndrome just by just not really being bothered with the idea that someone else should be here because I know that I worked so hard to get where I am now. Like I sacrificed so many things when I was younger as basically a book nerd. Like I spent around twenty four seven just in academics and in justice like I had literally zero friends for say like most of my life until like just now so I I don't typically try to think about that I try to say I'm here and I'm and I'm gonna do what I can to be here impositivism is a distraction to make you feel like you're not worthy of what you did when you know you put in the hours you know you put in the effort to to be where you are um but I do feel that sometimes when I'm in White House meetings I'm seeing them I'm like 19 years old and there's like the people with PhDs in the room. And it was like, do I have the expertise? And when I dig deep, I realize that I have had around six years of experience. Being this young, yeah, I still do have that that knowledge base that people don't expect. And yeah, I think that's kind of where I think some imposterism has to land, just push it aside and keep going. Well,
0: give us your story then. What's the story or the vision of the future you're fighting for? Help us to see what you see.
1: I think that's really important Um, because as activists, as change makers, we are often trying to change the system from being something. We don't realize what the system should be in the future. What do we want that system to look like? Um, Especially when it comes to not just on a local level, but the global level, as a whole, we have to think about our relationship, not just with nature, but with equity and around how do we have access to these things like when we think about why so many communities in the global South and South, South, South America and Africa and Southeast Asia, we see that there's no reason why they should not have the same access to things that people in the United States have as well. It's only because of the fact that we see international aid as a handout and we don't see it as a critical rehabilitation for the decades and hundreds of years that were perpetuated against them because if we had left them alone and hadn't had colonization, we hadn't had these massive, in violent systems of oppression, then we wouldn't be where we are today. We wouldn't have this massive inequity. And I think right now, what my vision for the world is, is that we have to actively restore what has been broken. And in the future, we have to make sure that we have boundaries and international boundaries that are not, that are enforceable to make sure that we don't have, and we don't return to this idea that nationalism is the first priority in every other nation doesn't matter, in that these invisible lines that were drawn by humans matter more than anything or anyone's life. In the next couple decades, billions of people will be impacted by the climate crisis and that will cause migrant issues around the world. Unless we start and have a, a world that's first focused on empathy and focused on the fact that Someone who's born in Pakistan, who happens to be born in Pakistan, is no different from a person who happens to be born in New York City or Louisiana or Germany. It doesn't matter. It matters about how we see other people. And that's how we as humans have to function. And I think on the more neighborhood level and on the more state or local level, I think that as we put infrastructure developments, how how do we prioritize the way that we build our cities and build our rural communities? We have to make sure that we don't allow um, these corporations to become governments because right now we're seeing Facebook or Meta or Elon Musk and his adventures becoming in a way, another form of government, another form of being able to create small pockets of communities that are only loyal to that one company. And I think that has to change in the future that we want to see is that we have limits where governments say, hey, rural communities should have access to 4G internet. They should have access to clean water um, infrastructure and seawalls that are developed, no matter how profitable they are, or no matter how they affect the bottom line, the company has the obligation to do this. And I think that's how we switch our priority to being around how do we make things profitable. How do we make sure that the top 1% of the world has even more access to wealth, but actually making sure that 99% of people actually have a good life and aren't just serving the 1% in endless means. And the last point I want to touch on is the fact that when it comes to the uses of materials, if we change the future to look like a circle in the way of supply chains, then that would be a much more streamlined way in which we operate as a society. If every time we buy a plastic bottle or every time we buy a new phone, we realize that this is a part of us and that every shirt that we buy is now a part of us and that wherever it goes around the world it follows us and the company that we bought it from, then our mindset would change. A new shirt isn't just a piece of cloth that we can throw away. It's always going to be there. And it's always tied to us. And that's how we have to think about how we use resources and how we interact with the planet that we're on. Because we have to be more efficient in the ways that we use resources.
0: Amazing. Jerome, how can people support you, follow you, and contact you?
1: Um, you can contact me on social media. My at is Jerome Foster the second two eyes Jerome Foster II. Um, or you can just um, follow Wake Up. It's at wake, um, wake Up. We're launching in July, and we're looking for people to spread the word around how they can get involved in movement. So be sure to follow there.
0: No, we got to go to our go-go to do our promo. <laughs> so there you go. We'll wake up. Man, I'm so glad to have you, my brother. And he is our guest today. He is Jerome Foster II. And I am Rev, your, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you, my brother. Appreciate you. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the
1: coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know know, know, know.